Hello, and welcome to Eyes on Success, a weekly program covering a wide variety of topics of interest to people with vision loss. I'm Nancy Goodman Torpy. And I'm Pete Torpy. You know, I'm sitting at a dinner yakking it up with Steve Pawlowski in February of 2019. And I was able to write this book and do all the work to get it published um, in a little over a year. And I think that isn't a tribute to me, but it's it just kind of, I felt like my hands were guided on the keyboard. And in today's show, we'll be hearing how that visit to a best-selling author's local blindness facility sparked a whole series of events. We'll speak with Barbara Hinsky, a best-selling author, about her latest novel, Guiding Emily, about a woman who suddenly goes blind and learns to adapt. But first for our tip of the week. This week's tip comes from Barbara Hinsky. You know, it was interesting as I was researching this, I learned so much because people were so open and honest with me, which was so helpful. And, you know, anyone would anticipate fear and some depression, but shame. People are ashamed to be blind. I was blown away by that. Why in the world would anybody be ashamed to have lost their eyesight? There's no shame in that. You know, if you've been blind for a long time, Maybe you're over that feeling of being ashamed that you're different. But for people who are newly blind or are facing that issue later in life, that can be a real problem. You are listening to Eyes on Success. Success, 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 success. Let's start by meeting Barbara and learning about how she got started as a writer. Thank you so much for having me on your show today. Um, I'm Barbara Hinsky. I'm an author of women's fiction and murder mysteries and now Guiding Emily. I understand you're a best-selling author. Thank you. My Rosemont series has been a bestseller. And my Christmas novella, The Christmas Club, uh, was also a bestseller and was made into a 2019 Hallmark Channel Christmas movie of the same name, The Christmas Club, anybody's a fan of that. That must have been an awful lot of fun to see what you created interpreted for the screen. You know what? It certainly was. It's a real moment, I have to tell you, when the television screen flashes your name in the credits. And they also, my husband and I went to um, Winnipeg last summer and were on set during filming um, or on location for a week. And they put us in as extras. Oh, what fun. I know. Now, you've been an author for some time, I take it. You have a number of books published, right? I do. I started writing in, well, I started writing late in 2010 when I broke my neck in a car accident. And I came out with serious double vision and a broken neck and lots of broken bones. Ouch. Yeah. So I couldn't watch television. I couldn't read. There wasn't a whole lot I could do. But my lower body was completely unaffected, so I could walk. The weather was nice at that time of year, so I would walk around my little house for about three hours a day, and my mind just started coming up with the Rosemont series, my first series of novels, because I simply had nothing else to do. What an interesting way to start a writing career. 
I guess it was kind of, I felt like I was shoved off the ledge, um, but it was, it was a lot of fun. I always thought when I retired, I would, I'm a lawyer and I was practicing law at that time. I thought when I retire, I'll start editing some of the books that my father, my father wrote murder mysteries when he retired, never tried to publish any of them, but they were quite good. So I thought, well, I'll edit dad's books and, you know, I'll publish them when I retire. And then after my accident, when I was walking, I just kind of could hear my dad's voice in my head saying, Barb, write your own book. So I did. So in just a bit, we'll be talking about a recent book that you wrote about an individual who went blind, but you mentioned your Rosemont series. For people who may not be familiar with that, can you give people an idea of what the overall theme is? Yes. So uh, Rosemont, I'll have the seventh book out in the series in the fall. It's about a 50-something-year-old woman whose husband dies suddenly. That's bad. After he died, she finds out he was embezzling from his employer, and so that's worse. And then she finds out he had a second family, which is really bad. So she's got all this bad stuff. But she also learns he inherited this stately manor home known as Rosemont in the Midwest. And she didn't know that he had inherited it. So when he died, it's now hers. She goes to take a look at it. She says, well, I don't need this house. I'm going to put it on the market. But she's trying to get answers to her own questions about who was this guy I was married to for 30 years and didn't know so well. But when she gets inside of Rosemont and the door closes behind her for the first time, she feels like she's at home. Sounds like a lot of intrigue in there. Yeah, there's a little bit of romance and a lot of mysteries, and it's all uplifting, page-turning, encouraging reading. Eyes on Success is made possible in part by our corporate partners. Underwriting pairs the impact of targeted marketing with the integrity of community goodwill. Learn more by sending an email to hosts at eyesonsuccess.net. This week's focus topic is Barbara Hinsky's recently published novel, Guiding Emily. So as we mentioned in the introduction, your recent book was about an individual who went blind. Can you tell us the title of the book and what was the motivation behind that? Yeah, yeah. I love talking about Guiding Emily. Um, It's a tale of love, loss, and courage. By far the best book I've written, um, and the reviews have been stunning. This book, I feel, was just kind of given to me. the next week given to my brain. I live within walking distance of the Foundation for Blind Children in Phoenix, Arizona. Lived down the street from it for 30 years, never been inside. And I was uh, attending a, a library gala, volunteer gala, and sat next to the development director for the foundation at dinner. And he's, we're chatting up a storm. We got along really well. And he said, well, why don't you and your husband come and take a tour of the foundation? So we did that the next week. And what happened on the tour? I just was overcome with the work that they do and seeing, you know, observing the teachers working with the children and they have children up to age 105, was able to talk to some of the adults, saw the pictures on the wall of young adult students who climbed Mount Kilimanjaro. But I'll tell you what still gets me 
there was a little four-year-old boy who ran up to me and threw his arms around my waist and gave me a big hug. He is blind and deaf and has some other disabilities. His parents moved to Phoenix from Canada when he was a baby because the doctors in Canada said he's never going to walk. He's never going to talk and he will not have a long lifespan. And they didn't accept that. So how brave is that? You know, you're moving your livelihood where your parents are and everybody, all your support system is, and you move to Phoenix for your child and look how it worked out. Wow. I had my arm around this little boy's back and he was loving on me. So we walked by the Braille library and there was one of those big old presentation checks on the wall from major league baseball for a million dollars. And I looked at that and I said, you know what? I want to check for me on that wall for $2 million. So, you know, but I'm not rich. I can't write a check for 2 million. Right. But you had another solution. Yeah. I'm a novelist and a book can make that kind of money. And I also asked Steve, what else do you need? And he said, we need to raise awareness within the sighted community of the isolation that visually impaired people feel within the greater community. And I said, well, bingo, a book can do both of those things. Um, That's why I started on it. I retired from my law practice, went to Canada, spent a week on location and came back home and started writing. And I understand that some of the proceeds from this book are actually going towards this organization. And in addition, you're raising awareness about blindness. That must feel good. I can't tell you how gratifying it feels to be able to do this. I'm donating half the proceeds. And I've heard from a number of people who are visually impaired that have said, you got it right. This is the experience. You said you hadn't known blind people before you went on the tour of the Foundation for Blind Children. How did you learn enough to write this book? I certainly did a lot of research, and the foundation was beyond generous. They gave me white cane training. Um, A number of newly blind people signed releases and let me sit in their group counseling session, which was a heartbreaking and eye-opening and inspiring, informed my book. So we've been talking about the book without actually discussing what's in it. Can you give us a brief synopsis of the book, including who some of the major characters are? My greatest desire for this book was to have the heroine who does lose her eyesight on her honeymoon. She has an accident, loses her eyesight. Guiding Emily is the love story between her and Garth, the guide dog that um, she becomes the handler of, and it's their journey together. I must say, we both read the book, and thank you very much for giving us advanced copies so we could do that. Garth was my favorite character in the whole book. The dog is just wonderful. Isn't he sweet? He was really sweet. He's perfect. He's he's just got the perfect uh, group of attributes, I think. Can you give a brief overview of the plot of the book without giving away any secrets in case somebody wants to read it? Yeah, absolutely. The book is told from two narratives. It follows Emily's journey. She is a high-flying young woman, tech executive in San Francisco, think Apple or one of those big, Microsoft, one of those. And she has a destination wedding and loses her eyesight on her honeymoon. 
Garth is a guide dog at one of the guide dog schools in California. Um, I did a lot of research at guide dogs for the blind. They were very kind to me. So that's kind of my prototype. And it's his journey of how he's getting trained and moving through his system while she's coping with her blindness, working through all of the issues that everyone has with that. She's newly married, the effect on that marriage, the effect on her friendships, her depression, her anxiety, all of that would have been a very heavy, hard plot line if it wasn't for lighthearted Garth and those chapters interspersed. He was a lot of fun. Thank you. And so, of course, they get together at the end, and I don't want anyone to think, and you can tell me, it's not a heavy, downcast story. And it's first in the series. It's meant to be a woman who approaches everyday joys and tragedies with the kind of courage that we all have, and she happens to be blind. It's not oh, boy, it sucks to be blind. Oh, this poor blind person. It is not that story, and it's not meant to be that story, and it will be a continuing series. I think you succeeded very well in making that distinction. Thank you. That was my number one. What I thought was interesting was how you take the reader through her journey and going through all the phases that you traditionally hear about people going through and have some change in their life like that. You know, first of all, denying it. Second of all, you know, sort of being angry about it. And then finally coming to grips with the problem. It actually seems to me through the book that through this whole process, she became a stronger person and a stronger personality. Oh, absolutely. This was a defining life experience for her that forged her and made her into someone much more, much more refined, much more aware, much more courageous. Yeah. Sometimes people faced with challenges when you have to overcome these challenges, it, it just makes you become stronger if you want to get where you're going. Yeah, Absolutely. And as much as the guide dog was instrumental in her development, the people at the guide dog school were also instrumental. Yes. There was a scene in the book that particularly caught both of our attention, in which Emily first meets members of a support group at the guide dog school. I thought this section was interesting because, you know, if you think of people losing their vision, their first impulse is to not think about it, not know about the resources that are available, and they don't want to accept the kind of help. And I thought it was interesting when she walked into this group, several people spoke out and talked about how their experience at this center had benefited them and changed their lives for the better. Can you read a segment from that portion of the book, please? Yeah, absolutely. I've got some people I want you to meet. Find the lounge, Golda, Julie said, and the dog, who had been waiting patiently in his harness, took off down the hall at a brisk pace. Golda led them to a set of double doors. There's a student meeting going on right now. I'd like to introduce you, Julie said. These students are at different stages in our program. You'll be part of this group if you join us. I don't know, Emily began as Julie opened the door. Follow me inside, Julie said. 
Drub and Emily filed in after Julie and Golda and stood against the wall. Hey, everybody, Julie said in the teacher in charge of the classroom voice. I want you to meet Emily Maine. Hi, Emily, came a chorus of a dozen or so voices. She's considering joining us. I want to go around the room so you can introduce yourselves. Tell her what brought you here and how long you've been in the program. And introduce your guide, too, if you have one. I'll start, said an older man with a radio announcer's voice. I came here about eight months ago. My macular degeneration had gotten to the point several years ago where I couldn't function independently outside of my own home. I relied on my wife to take me places. She died year before last. I'm retired and didn't have anywhere that I could go, so I just stayed in the house. I'd become a prisoner in my own home. I was depressed and wasn't taking care of myself. My kids were worried and wanted me to come live with one of them. If there's one thing I never want to be, it's a burden to my children. My daughter found the foundation. My training, his voice cracked, will let me continue to live independently. I'll be graduating next week. I'm Shirley, said the next person to speak. I've only been here for three weeks, but I took my first walk outside with my cane today by myself. I walked two blocks up to the next main street and walked back. I was terrified. They had to really encourage me to do it, but I made it just fine. I have to tell you, I experienced such a rush when I got back to my counselor's office on my own. That section of the book really exemplifies the kind of hope that people can get from these programs. And, you know, a lot of people don't know about these programs and they think, oh, I don't belong there. But it really shows what a positive influence it can have on people's lives. Mm -hmm. Right. And I thought you were very open and honest about these various participants coming from different places really in their lives and starting out and, and admitting how uneasy and uncomfortable they were with their vision loss at first and how developing skills and ultimately getting guide dogs, many of them, you know, it really allowed them to be a lot more free, more confident, more independent, and to do all the things that, you know, people who are comfortable with being blind know is possible, but people who are new to it are just frightened. In the course of doing your research for this book, was there anything that particularly surprised you of which you weren't aware before? Yes. You know, it was interesting as I was researching this, I learned so much because people were so open and honest with me, which was so helpful. And, you know, anyone would anticipate fear and some depression, but shame. People are ashamed to be blind. I was blown away by that. Why in the world would anybody be ashamed to have lost their eyesight? There's no shame in that. And in one of my group counseling sessions that I was able to attend, I think he had been coming to the program. It was at the end of his first week. This young man in his maybe early 30s said that it was hard for him to even go to Starbucks with his brother who was sighted because he said he would get panic attacks from all the noise around him. But then someone who had been in the, in the program for two weeks said, oh yeah, that'll go away. Just keep go a couple more times and you'll feel better. So sitting there and listening to this and the group confidence, and it is always inspiring to be with a group of people whose sole focus is, let's all help everyone else. Yeah, when you start to see other people in the same situation, it can make you feel a little bit more comfortable. 
people, you know, in general, I think, don't like to feel different and certainly don't want to be perceived as being disabled. You know, my feeling is we all have our strengths and weaknesses, and it's just a matter of how we treat those and how we overcome what might be perceived as our weaknesses and how we adapt to our situations. You know, one thing I learned in all of this that I feel personally bad about on the isolation issue is just almost blind etiquette, if you would. Years ago, I worked for a corporation. I was in the law department. There was a man who was blind in another department. He and I didn't work together, but I knew who he was. We had been introduced, worked on the same floor. And if I would pass him in the hallway, I would like get out of the way because I didn't want to be in his way. But I didn't speak to him. I just felt awkward. Well, oh my goodness, he knew I was there. Of course he did. He could hear me breathing. And how mean and isolating that is. I should have done what I would do to anybody. Hi, whoever you are, you know, it's far from legal. How hard would that have been? It was misplaced. Yeah, right. And I could have done better. I think American adults are socialized into pretending that they don't notice that the other guy has some sort of disability. You know, it's like the other guy's sitting in a wheelchair and you just pretend that you didn't notice. Now, mm-hmm. whether or not you can see, you're going to know and you might as well just, yeah. you know, this is part of reality. Deal with it. Yes. But we're socialized away from doing that. I'm really hoping that this series, not only will it raise a lot of money for Foundation for Blind Children, but particularly the awareness piece. Um, I'm aware of the high unemployment rate within the um, visually impaired community, which is absolutely ridiculous. There is no reason for it. And part of it is probably just uninformed discomfort. And we need to stop that. Yes. Yes. Now, you referred to the fact several times that this is the first in a series. Can you tell us where you might be headed with this series and what people might expect? Well, yeah. Do you even know what to expect yourself? (laughs) A little bit, a little bit. I've had a number of readers contact me and tell me what they'd like to see. So people want to see more of Drove. He's a wonderful character. And I plan to write more story, happy storylines for him. They want to see more of Zoe and maybe see Zoe come to live with Emily. That might happen. Zoe was the child that she meets later on in the story. She was very cute also. Who lives with her grandmother. So, and is a great, as children often are, they just gloss by adult objections to things and they're, you know, single-minded. She's a great encourager to Emily to get a guide dog. She was great. She really, more than almost anybody else in the book, possibly everybody else, saw possibilities and ignored barriers. Yeah, which I think is kind of the way children are. Yes, they haven't been jaded or socialized to being negative. (laughs) Yeah, why we can't do stuff. Um, The other thing I'd like to mention about this book is that when I was at Guide Dogs for the Blind, I asked them the same thing I asked. Steve, what do you guys need? Because I was so impressed with their organization. And they said they need awareness of the serious dangers posed to legitimate guide dogs by phony service dogs. You know, the people who buy a vest on the Internet for 20 bucks that says service dog. You illustrated that dramatically. I 
wrote that scene in for that purpose. I had, I wasn't aware that there are a number of guide dogs that are taken out of, and other service animals just taken out of service, out of their useful work because they've been attacked um, while they're out. So we've got to just stop that as a society. It's ridiculous. There was one other feature of this book that I think is wonderful, and that is the photograph on the cover. Can you describe that? Yes. Isn't that the best? This is an image of a, Garth is a black lab, very handsome black lab, based upon a real life guide dog black lab named Miyoki. So it's a black lab and he's looking out a little to the side into the camera, full face, full close up on his lovely black nose. And his face, his muzzle is resting in the cupped hands of a woman, obviously Emily Maine here. And the first time I saw that image, I said, well, there we are. That's it. I just think this is a poignant cover. And frankly, if this cover doesn't sell books, then I don't know what cover ever would. <laughs> well, and it's besides being beautiful and poignant, it's very representative of what happens in the book. Yeah. Great cover. Beautiful. Thank you. Thank you. I feel like all along the way, this was guided. I felt like my hands were guided on the keyboard. Nice. And for anybody who's interested, we actually did an episode in July, just a couple of months ago, about the case for and against service animals and what's been happening lately with the proliferation of real and maybe not so real service animals. And if you're interested in that, it's episode number 2028. You are listening to Eyes on Success. Success, 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 success. Now for this week's final item, how to learn more about the Foundation for Blind Children, how to find Barbara Hinsky's writings, and how to contact her directly. So if people would like to contact you or to acquire the book, where would you send them? And I hope people do contact me. I love hearing from people. So it's really easy. My email is bhinske, like Barbara, B-H-I-N-S-K-E at gmail.com. Of course, I have a website, uh, barbarahinsky.com. My books are sold on Amazon in uh, print and and uh, ebook, Guiding Emily, all my books are there. I believe that an audio version of this will be available. I'm, I kind of held off selling the audio rights until it kind of took off because I frankly thought we'd get more money for it. And I want the foundation to get as much money as they can. So I think we'll have an audio book. But in the meantime, the Braille version is available to be checked out of the Foundation for Blind Children, and it is also on Bookshare. Do you have a website for the Foundation for Blind Children so people can find that? Yes, thank you. It's see it our way, like S-E-E, seeitourway.org. And I'm on Facebook and Instagram, of course, you know, all that stuff under, you know, my author name, Barbara Hinsky. And as usual, you can find all that contact information in the show notes associated with this episode at www.eyesonsuccess.net. 
That's it for show number 2036. Next week on Eyes on Success, we'll be talking about the new Mantis and other products from the American Printing House for the Blind. The Mantis Q40 is a refreshable 40-cell Braille display that distinguishes itself from similar devices with a built-in QWERTY keyboard. We'll talk with Larry Scootcan from the American Printing House for the Blind about the device and how the APH and Humanware partnered to develop it. And we will also be discussing other exciting new products from the APH. So if you want to learn more about the Mantis and what's going on at APH, join us next week. You've been listening to Eyes on Success, hosted and produced by Nancy Goodman Torpy and Peter Torpy, and distributed by WXXI Reach Out Radio. You can access the full archive of previous shows, subscribe to the podcast, and much more by going to our website, www.eyesonsuccess.net. If you have questions about anything you've heard on the show or have suggestions for future shows, send an email to hosts at eyesonsuccess.net. Thank you for listening and have a nice day.